This edition of Radio New Zealand's Insight is a chance to hear a programme that has just won Best Documentary in the New Zealand Radio Awards. The Samoan tsunami late last year killed nearly 200 people in the region and left hundreds more homeless. In the aftermath, reporters Leilani Momoisia and Clint Owens covered the story and spoke to those affected by the devastation. Travelling back home, but not like any previous time, this time distressed family members, a shaken-up Samoan Prime Minister, politicians and an on-edge group of reporters filled the plane. The tension was palpable as the media mingled with victims throughout the flight, attempting to garner whatever information possible while trying to remain respectful. On the flight, I was told that Tui Annandale, a prominent Samoan businesswoman, had died while trying to save her elderly mother. We knew what awaited us must be bad, but we had no way of knowing how bad. As the plane touched down, there was a strange calm about the first sights of Samoa. This Samoa was still intact, still green and untouched. Total devastation waited an hour and a half away, while not yet seen. It had been most definitely felt by Bentol 4, who checked through the Faleolo airport in autopilot mode. We lost our dad, two sisters, two nieces and two of our cousins. So here we are at Samoa airport. I don't know what to expect. We're just going to go out there and try and get to Lalamanu before dark. While Ben Tolfour travelled to the southeast coast of Samoa, the Annandale family came together to arrange the first funeral of the tsunami victims. As per her wishes, Tui Annandale was buried within 24 hours of her death. Her husband Joe was with Tui when she was swept out to sea from their village, Poltasi. Just wanted to get up to higher ground. We just didn't do it quick enough. This huge wave just came and smothered us, and the car just flipped and turned and took us up, up into higher ground, about 300 metres. We were still underwater, but miraculously, Tui's mother survived. I was able to get her out of the car. Of course, I carried on looking for Tui and. Uh, an hour later, it was tragic to find her that she was pinned in between up in the branches of a tree and we were able to cut her free, and, but it was all too late. They were to have celebrated 40 years of marriage this year. It's uh, tragic. There's so many families out there mourning the loss. Travelling through the villages in the Alaipata district on Samoa's southeast coast, the damage seemed to get progressively worse. At first, just patches of villages were destroyed, roofs mangled, whole brick houses gone or gaping holes through the buildings. People searched through the rubble, some for belongings, others for loved ones. But at Lalomanu, one of Samoa's most picturesque villages, the devastation had reached its peak. Save for a few battered coconut trees, nothing was left standing. I described the scene to Mary Wilson on Checkpoint. Leilani, a grim recovery task going on there. For those who have been to Lalomanu, they'll know that you know the water is usually clear and pristine and there's all these cute little fallies that scatter the beach. You, you wouldn't even know that this was the prime tourist spot. It's, it looks like almost a, a rubbish tip. Lalomanu's neighbouring village, Saleapanga, was also victim to the same level of destruction. Whole families were just washed away. There was just there was no warning. It was 
it was the devastation is complete and total. Carol Batchelor and her husband Jack owned a resort in Saliapanga and recalls the terrifying moment the tsunami hit. They went outside and the ocean was gone. And where the reef was, it looked like the edge of the earth because it was no water and then just a drop off and then it was just nothing. And he goes, run, Carol, run. And I, I turned and I, I ran up the hill. And Jack goes, I'm going to go warn Kenny, our neighbor and our best friend here, because Kenny is Samoan, and he was grabbing his nets to go out and catch fish because the water had receded and he wanted to get all these fish. So my husband ran over to where Kenny was, and he pointed to the ocean, and he said, Tsunami, run! Kenny turned and he ran into his, his house to grab his baby and right when he got there the first wave hit his fale exploded and it, it washed Kenny and the baby out to sea. At that point my husband grabbed his other two small children, they were about two and three years old, and he had one in both arms and then the second wave hit and the second wave was about three quarters of the height of the telephone pole. It came crashing down on my husband and he just started to swim with the wave. The wave pulled one of the babies out of his arms and the baby was taken to the sea. My husband held on to the other baby and the third wave hit and it pushed him up into the mountains where he got uh, tangled up in a tree but he was underwater and he could see the rocks through the water. And he took the baby and he threw the baby up into the rocks and right when my husband was running out of air, the water receded and he was able to cut himself out of the branches and, and go and save the baby. She says she could hear the waves crashing, the buildings collapsing and people screaming as she ran to higher ground, but any stories of survival were far outnumbered by the stories of death. When I got to the top of the, the hill, many survivors came and congregated right at the top of the hill, and there was one woman there that was just sitting there rocking her dead baby. And there was another lady that was bleeding and, and had broken bones, and then we looked up to see, and there was a, an older woman that was holding on to a log, and everybody started clapping because there was somebody alive, and they, people went running in to get her. But when they went down there, there was a dead two-year-old on the sea, on the, on the beach. So I, I, can't, I can't put into words the total destruction and the loss of life. Their friend Kenny was found washed up on the beach a few days later. In contrast to some of the less affected villages, villagers from Lalomanu and Saleapanga were not out sifting through the rubble. They had fled to the hills and had no intention of ever coming down. Reverend Uwaya Isaraelu had, along with 90% of his village, already relocated to higher ground on the first night following the tsunami. Everyone here is just totally scared and we thought this is our safe haven here, the top of the mountain. You know, it's not easy, no lights, no basic waters, but we are safe, that's the most important. In Apia, the government looked for ways to deal with the growing body count. Following a second meeting with the public, a mass funeral had been agreed upon to be held four days after the tsunami had hit. Samoans traditionally bury their loved ones at the family home, and the idea of having them buried away from home in a mass funeral went against cultural custom. But relatives remained shell-shocked, and the idea was initially accepted by many, as it was by Aperamu Mamoi. Our family back home, they don't want to live there again, because they think this place here is like the place that 
is a curse or something. That's why we agree with them because our family back there, they don't want to live there anymore and they don't want the bodies over there. Ben Tolfoa was also there by now, having learnt that 13 of his relatives had died. Having already buried his family, he was at the meeting to warn others of the difficult task they would face in having their loved ones released from the morgue. When we went to ask for our loved ones, mate, talk about hurdles to jump over. Our experience, and this is really, really sad, eight members of my family were found on the first day, so they were the first into there. When we went to pick up the bodies, they were worse than the bodies that we just found 48 hours later. So the question was asked, do you realise realize these are coolers? And when you have 100 bodies in the cooler, what do you get? Nothing. You get rotten bodies. I had to go in and deliver my, my sisters, and I wouldn't allow any of my family members to ever look again because they were, they were shocked. While the government prepared for the country's memorial service, those in the affected areas continued to establish new villages further inland while aid efforts were stepped up. In neighbouring American Samoa, the tsunami killed 34 people and caused widespread destruction. Flying into the country three days after the tsunami had struck, the Governor of the United States Territory, Tongiola Tulufunu, told journalists at the airport how the authorities were helping those affected. The initial part of the recovery is to clean up the, the debris and then setting up temporary shelter for families who wish to go back to their place of residence so they can have a shelter and put cooking facilities and sanitation facilities. We will still be maintaining the shelters for those who are not able to go back or otherwise don't have any place to go back to. He predicted a long road ahead for the recovery. In terms of physical properties, it'll probably take us anywhere between 18 and 24 months to restore all those things, if that long. But in terms of the total impact of this disaster, I, I don't think we know that right now. The day after arriving, I drove to the hard-hit capital, Pangopango, which is in Pangopango Harbour. With me is Api Toliafoa, who I met on the plane from New Zealand to Samoa. He's loaded the boot up with basic supplies for his best friend's family. I already called them in, uh, to make sure they're OK, but they, they need groceries clothes because their house is completely damaged. When we get close enough to see some of the damage to Pangopango, the scale of destruction shocks him. Oh my gosh, this is... It looks like he got hit by a, an atomic bomb. It doesn't look like Pangopango that I, I was raised from. It's amazing what this water can do in a very small time. We stopped to survey the damage in the heart of Pangopango, where several people died. While the cleanup involving diggers is into its fourth day, the amount of debris still left to be removed is phenomenal. Mangled cars are everywhere, boats have been swept well inland, homes and other buildings are badly damaged, many beyond repair. In charge of the physical cleanup is the director of public works, Taio Tui. So right now we're kind of concentrating on the main road. So everybody make it easy to go from one part of the island to another part of the island. And also help some individual family to clean it up. Uppy Tolia 4 and I then headed to the Madison household, which was extensively damaged by the tsunami. After unloading supplies, 
Fasui Madison tells me she was doing dishes when the earthquake struck. When the earthquake shook, we all ran in the living room and we weren't even thinking about the tsunami. Uh, we thought it was the earthquake. So what was your first indication that there was going to be a tsunami? It was one of the guys that ran from the hill, told us to jump in the car and just leave to go up to the mountain. When we jumped in the car, one of the other car came and blocked us. And when we got out of the car, the tsunami was right there, close to the house. Was it coming in fast? Yeah, it was coming real fast. So me and my niece, we got out of the car and we ran up on the hill right there. They ran towards an area where neighbor Athena Monga was standing, watching in horror. It sounded like a truck coming in, with, like hitting trees and stuff. Like it just came in like full force and bringing in all this debris from the bay. The trash in its path, the boats and cars. It was like 10 feet high. And one of the trucks that was here had two guys in it. It was a big F-150. And the water sort of picked it up. And the boys were still in it. And when the water receded going back, it brought the car back. And the boys were still inside, still safe and sound. Down the road, Myung Soo Cho and his daughter are lucky to be alive after the tsunami engulfed their shop while they were in it. We climbed up the shelf. And then water still come inside. And then that time... I call, Jesus help, Jesus help, you know, maybe on 10 times or something like that. After that, I hear the big noise, bang, bang, something like that. That's why me and my daughter come out. At that time, I look at the sun, oh, I'm lucky, I'm alive. Myung Soo Cho and Heo Cho amazingly escaped with just cuts and bruises after being swept inland by the surging water. Their shop, however, was more badly damaged with only one wall left standing. But Mr Cho says he wants to rebuild. I hope I can try again to the, my business because always uh, seven people all stay to the, working to the store. We can make life. The next day, I head to the ruined coastal village of Lione, where 11 people died. I meet with reluctant hero Rupa Tiopa. He says after watching the tsunami form up, he grabbed his wife and took cover in their gas station. The water is about five feet. I told my wife, let's get ready to start run. So when we were out from the gas house, and I found the other old lady were hitting my side. I grabbed them and lift up. She still alive. And takes about 20 feet from after I pick another one. So I found another one too. And I pick it up and she survived too. A national prayer service is held later that day in a church at Kananafo. About 600 people pack the venue, and it's estimated tens of thousands more tune in on radio and television in both American Samoa and parts of Samoa. Governor Tongiola Tulufono tells the congregation the tsunami has not dented people's faith. The greatest thing that I've seen out of this disaster and this catastrophe is that we are solid in our faith. We are steadfast in our Lord. That we have accepted with humility this incident. Due to the influx of aid workers, accommodation on the island is tight, and I leave Tufuna village for Ta'alolo Lodge in Ili Ili. Owner Ta'alolo Drabal grew up in Pango Pango and remembers the last tsunami in the late 1950s. 
It wasn't a tsunami then as we knew it now. We knew it as flood. And I remember seeing the entire bay emptied all the way out in front of the canneries. And we could see the fish and uh, sharks. And as kids, as we would run to play with the fish or try to get the fish. And we could see the, the waves rolling in. As soon as we saw that, we just you know, start running up on the hill. And we thought it was funny at the time, but I'm sure my grandmother must have had five heart attacks at that time. Her daughter, Tina Drabble, says while much of the island escaped the tsunami, no one has been untouched. Everybody is affected by this tragedy. It's such a close-knit community. Everybody knows somebody that something happened, their homes are lost or lost loved ones. The disaster has brought chaplain and ex-police officer Steve Lee to the island and Ta'alolo Lodge. His job is to counsel police officers and others who responded in devastated areas. People see them and they see themselves, and naturally so, as the ones who are the helpers to those who've been hurt and traumatized and affected by these things. But the reality is, is that the first responders, they become victims too because they process what they see and what they experience. They feel it too. The U.S. military's top man on the island is also staying at Ta'alolo Lodge. Amir Abmashani from Pacific Command says the bulk of their work in the recovery operation is cleaning up hazardous materials. There was a great deal of debris after the tsunami from the power plant. Not just from the power plant, but just around the port area. You had ships uh, that were knocked over, boats, cars. When those things uh, get flooded out, they have a lot of uh, materials that leak out of them. A week on from the tsunami, and the damage bill has topped 150 million US dollars. Power generation on the island is at 30%, and 4,000 people are still in shelters. At the Red Cross's base in Tafuna, it's a hive of activity. Eight workers prepare to deliver 800 care kits, 1,000 sleeping cots, 500 tents and thousands of litres of water. Mass Care Administrator Richard Rickenberg says in addition to general aid drops, they are also carrying out hotshot runs. A hotshot run is where you find pockets of people, for instance, may have gone, in, in some cases, may have gone up into the mountains to escape the tsunami and they don't have a source of food there or they don't have a source of water and for whatever reason haven't gone into the government shelters. And so we'll go to those areas, we'll give them uh, some basic supplies right now. I go on one of these hotshot runs which takes us to several villages, including Sailele. This local is very glad to see us. We're lucky if we get the water. <laughs> We're thankful for, for them bringing us water. That's the main thing. It means a lot, a great lot for us. But not everything is going smoothly. The local Red Cross chairman, Smitty McMore, reveals government-supplied aid is being hoarded by some village leaders. The way things are usually distributed in the islands is it's given through the Matai or the chief of each village. And the thing we've been finding out is it has been distributed to those people, but they have a tendency to think that these things are for them to give to who they like and who they don't like don't get anything at all. Back in Samoa, I head to the New Zealand High Commission, where staff have been dealing with hundreds of inquiries and working up to 20 hours a day. But perhaps Christine Saanga had one of the hardest jobs to do 
identifying the dead New Zealanders. It's an image that will probably be with me for a long time. It's not that you know I hadn't seen dead people before. It's just the magnitude of seeing so many at once. The 40 survivors still in hospital in Apia more than a week after the tsunami struck are also struggling to cope. The Samoan National Health Service General Manager, Dr Stanley Dean, says many are psychologically affected and show signs of post-traumatic stress. Some of them can't sleep at the moment. It's because they still have that fear of that sort of thing and they don't want really to go back home uh, to a lower ground uh, near, the, near the beach. So we're giving them acute treatment. Tsunami ward patient Anzanetta Slaven-Schwalger, who'd lost her two kids and parents-in-law to the tsunami, won't return to her devastated village of Malala. We spent good times together, good memories, and it's like the tsunami memories will be the only memory that will ruin all those good memories. I'm not ready to go back. I don't think I'll ever be ready to go back. But as soon as I get out of this hospital, I'll be able to walk We'll move to New Zealand as we were already planned it with my kids. But I'll still cherish my kids' memory inside, inside my heart, inside my head. I'll always love them. And then on top of the physical and emotional toll, two further earthquakes struck the region. There's been panic in the South Pacific today after two large earthquakes dubbed a double event struck in quick succession off Vanuatu. In Samoa, there was widespread panic. Our reporter Leilani Mamoisia was just inland from Lalumanu. We'd driven up the mountain to see if there were any more villages who had camped way up there. As we started driving down, we saw groups of uh, women and children just racing up the hill. And the children kept telling us, turn around, turn around, get back up the hill. And and we didn't quite know what was happening because we'd been listening to the radio the whole time. We knew we were on tsunami watch, but uh, there had been no announcement that there was a tsunami warning. So the villagers found out before us and they were telling us, no, no, you better turn around because it's a tsunami warning and, and they were quite panicked racing up there and uh, when it finally did uh, come on the radio The following day, about 5,000 people gathered at Apia Park Stadium for Samoa's National Memorial Service for all victims of the tsunami. However, many from the Alepata district had by now buried their dead and saw no point in making the trip into town. At the memorial service, the police marching band played as three trucks draped in tupper cloth and fine mats carried 11 caskets, including three holding children. School children laid a wreath for each of the victims. The Prime Minister Tuileipa Sailele Malie Lengoi spoke briefly about the unprecedented loss of life and the need to learn lessons from the tragedy so that the deaths were not in vain. The 11 caskets were taken to Tafangata Cemetery for burial, among them two relatives of Emere Yelua. I would like to say uh, goodbye for my sister and also my niece and nephews and members of our family that's been dying in the tsunami. I hope we meet again in heaven. We all miss them, but we still love them.
The next day in New Zealand, 24-year-old Rebecca and 22-year-old Patria Martin were also laid to rest. Their parents, Kerry and Lynn Martin, had come to Samoa earlier in the week to recover their daughters' bodies and to see for themselves where they had spent their last moments. We know that they were having a great time and it was a holiday that they were really looking forward to. They were excited to be there and for a freak natural disaster would still have them, but as fate would have it, they didn't make it up the hill. Consequently, we were overtaken by the water and didn't survive, obviously, and um, we had to come up here to see for ourselves what had happened because we just could not believe that when they left home they were just going to have a fun holiday in Samoa. Reporting in Samoa was no easy task, speaking daily to people about death and loss, seeing the tears well up in their eyes and fighting off the tears I could feel welling up in my own. There was a heaviness I felt the entire time. This was my country and these were my people and I had to get it right. Somehow I had to get the enormity of their stories across with the same dignity and grace with which they had been shared. But some of that weight lifted as the country's focus shifted to the upcoming White Sunday celebrations. White Sunday is the day of the year specially reserved to celebrate the nation's children, with many of the victims being children and many more having lost their homes and possessions this year's White Sunday held extra meaning. Children from Ulutongia village practiced their hymns and Bible verses for the day. Their church had been destroyed and the service was held in the school hall. Reverend Moselata hoped White Sunday would be able to give the children some joy after a difficult time. This is not only a special Sunday for the kids, but this is the most important Sunday for them, as this is the memory of what's happened. I, I try to encourage them and to exhort and to tell them to forget what they saw on that 29th that morning and try to concentrate on the future. In Saleapanga village, each child wore a black ribbon attached to their white outfits. Reverend Uwaya Israelu cried as he read the names of the 15 children from Saleapanga who died in the tsunami. At Lalomanu village, each family performed an item in memory of the loved ones they had lost, including Ben Tolfua and his family. It's a roller coaster ride. You're together one moment and then another service brings us all back and that bad dream continues. I hope that um, it's going to get some end soon and some closure soon. Hundreds of people are still displaced in Samoa and work continues to rebuild a safe water and sanitation system. An epidemic of emotional ills is also taking a toll. In these difficult circumstances and despite his own harrowing experience, Bentol Four was among many Samoans who showed strength and resilience and a sense of hope. Having buried our loved ones, wow. 
it's my responsibility to also start planning ahead for the living, to serve them well as well. Our faith in God is holding us together, and our faith in God will take us forward as well. That was Ben Tofor ending that Radio New Zealand Insight by Leilani Mamoisia and Clint Owens, a programme that has just won Best Documentary at the New Zealand Radio Awards. It was first broadcast in December last year. Technical production was by Mark Chesterman and it was produced by Sue Ingram.